Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I am pleased to introduce part two of four in our series on neuroscience. We'll speak to doctors who are at the forefront of understanding the brain, the science behind cognition, injury states, mental health, and mindfulness. In this episode, we'll dive into the benefits of meditation with Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, an assistant professor at the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Sanguinetti tells us how to gain more control over your brain state, whether or not there's a shortcut to being mindful, and the concept of meditating anywhere, even while driving. For today's conversation, we're joined by my co-host, Silicon Valley internist, Dr. Justin Lotfi. Welcome, Justin. Hi, glad to be here. So Jay, thanks for joining us today. Super excited to have you on the show. Sure, happy to. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. We first met I think it was before the pandemic in the top of the Salesforce tower and you were putting an EEG helmet of some sort on my head and you were measuring things about my brain. And I don't really want to tell everybody about my superpowers or or their lack thereof, but could you tell us what that EEG was measuring and what it was looking for? So yeah, EEG, that's a device that's measuring the electrical patterns of your brain or the electrical oscillations. And, you know, what we're really interested in my lab is looking at electrical signals of meditation. So what's the brain doing while you meditate? So for you, what we had you do is hook up to the EEG. And if I remember right, I think you kind of concentrated on something. You, you focused your attention, sort of like a meditation. And then we were looking for the, the EEG signature or the brain's signature of how well you were getting into that meditative state. And uh, I think you did pretty good. I don't have the data in front of me, so I can't speak to it. And you were measuring states, uh, of, I guess, looking for biomarkers of the brain as you get close to a meditative state. And, and you were mentioning like there's an alpha state. I guess there's a beta state and a theta state, and there's lots of states. Maybe you could educate the people uh, who are listening on the kind of states of the brain. You know, I, I like to think about brain oscillations. If you look at a big pool and you were to throw a bunch of pebbles in the pool, you'd see all of these uh, dynamic peaks and troughs in the pool. That's kind of what the brain oscillations or brain waves look like. Um, And so what we're doing with EEG is we're measuring all of that from 100 billion neurons or so. Uh, So it's like a a swimming pool with like 100 billion pebbles thrown into it. So it's actually a really hard problem to parse out states um, from that. But that's what the field of neuroscience and psychology has been uh, developing over the past, you know, 100 years or so. So whenever you're more tired, you'll see the brain waves slow down. So that's the alpha wave is 10 hertz, the theta wave is about 7 hertz, and the delta wave, the really slow wave, is about 2 to 4 hertz. So if you were getting sleepy from hearing me talk, your brain waves would slow down. If I'm getting you excited, if you get sort of activated and you get lots of ideas, I'd actually see more waves. So it's like dropping more, more pebbles into that pool. So from a very broad sense, we can correlate EEG to the state. 
But then, of course, if you use advanced processing, you can look at even more fine-grained um, types of brain states. And that's really what my lab is looking at, is actually you can get down to the microstate, so the millisecond by millisecond state of the brain, and try to track if you start meditating, does the microsecond state change? And does that state change in the brain predict, like, I'm, I'm in a more meditative and state? Have you, have you found... Um that people who meditate regularly are able to enter that state faster, like there's a, there's a decreased latency, or even in an extreme case, perhaps a, a meditating monk in that state all the time while, while talking to you even? Yeah, that's a great question. So our lab tends to look at beginner meditators, we call them novices, and then you look at people with various levels of experience. And one thing that the field of mindfulness research has found is that the more you meditate, the more control you can get over your brain states. So you, you have more control over your attention, for example, and what you pay attention to. There's no magic number, unfortunately. Um, so I can't tell you if you meditate X amount of hours, you'll be able to control these states. It's pretty dynamic, but it's very clear that after a couple years of meditation, for example, you can bring that meditator back into the lab, put an EEG or put them in the MRI scanner, and you tell them, you ring the bell and you say, meditate, they can put their brain into a different state um, pretty efficiently, but not every time, right? Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. However, if you bring someone in with about 30 years of meditation experience, now <clears throat> you see much more consistency in the control of their brain state. So pro tip, meditate for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so what is meditation? Let's zoom all the way out for a second. I mean, it's, it's a term that's used, I think, loosely amongst the, 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 the lake public. Uh, how would we take like the kind of the noisy version that we hear out in the public and try to put some bowl around the jello, so to speak, of, of, of what, what that really means? So there's a really long answer and there's a really short answer. So I'll start in between, <laughs> you know, because in science, we always have to measure something, right? So in the lab, we're always talking about what is the thing that we can measure when someone's meditating. However, if you back up and look at like Buddhism and contemplative practices, meditation can mean a lot of different things depending on who's talking about it. So it can be a set of practices. It can be a state that your brain goes into. Um, in Buddhism, it can even be a way of life in a certain sense. You're, you're practicing that throughout your life through the Eightfold Path. But in the lab, you know, really we've been focused on meditation as an objective thing that we can measure and look at the effect of when you try to meditate, how does it change the brain and the body? Really where the field is focusing on is on attention. So as you meditate, you're using your attention system to focus your consciousness or your awareness um, in a particular way. So it's not just that you're focusing because that's what, you know, Steph Curry does when he focuses on the rim. But if, if Steph Curry is focusing with a, a form of openness and non-attachment, for example, you know, that's what some people would call uh, meditation. In our lab, we actually look at it as three different attention components, being able to concentrate on the rim, being able to concentrate on everything that's happening in the sensory processing. So how fast is the basketball moving? And then importantly, what we call equanimity, which is being able to be open. So if Steph Curry misses the ball, he's got to let go, be open to the experience. I miss. There's 20,000 people or however many people watch Steph Curry. It's fine. Let go and focus on the next thing. That's equanimity. 
So we would call practicing med meditation as practicing all of these attention skills together. Maybe, uh, Jay, you could tell us a little bit about your lab. I know that you were the assistant director of the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. How did, how did it come to pass that uh, you decided to kind of go there um, versus becoming, you know, a pilot or, or you know, a fireman? How do you, I mean, was it, was it like your destiny from a child or did something trigger you when you were younger to like become fascinated with the space? I wanted to be an astronomer, but I'm not so great at math. So I, uh, I moved into psychology and philosophy. <laughs> I had a deep desire to understand how the mind and consciousness works. And I really wanted to help people. So I've had this like sort of deep curiosity about consciousness and this deep need and desire to create tools to help people free themselves from the things that makes them suffer. So helping consciousness become more fully, you know, present and meaningful and, and how, helping people have better relationships, you know, all the things that can happen for a person when they get over the, the chronic pain, when they get over the, the mental suffering. So it was really those two things. I really wanted to like understand and build tools to help. And I made my way to human neuroscience and human philosophy and, you know, really trying to figure out how do I bring the tools together from neuroscience, from psychology, from philosophy, and ultimately from Buddhism, mash those together into a set of tools that actually helps reduce suffering. Um, at the same time, I was doing a lot of practice myself. So I was doing a lot of mindfulness retreats, uh, mindfulness groups, also doing psychotherapy and some sort of more traditional psychological healing. And that stuff started working for me. So I went from a totally anxious person who you know, honestly, it was very focused on the collapse of the ecosystems and climate change. And I, I was a very sort of aware of the coming stress for humanity. And I was really tortured by that. So, you know, it was kind of this piece for me where I was dealing with that sort of grief about nature, grief about my, my role in all of this, but then doing all the meditation practice and it was totally helping me. So talking about openness, I became open with all of the stuff of like, watching the coral reefs die. You know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an ocean person and that was really difficult for me and still is. But now I have the tools, the inner tools to show up for that and ask myself, instead of just laying in bed and wondering when the world's going to end, which is what some of my friends are doing, um, you know, how do I motivate my body out into the world and do something where I can make an impact? And that's really where all my science training, all my philosophy training, <clears throat> excuse me, and my my sort of inner work, my meditation work kind of all came together and I decided I want to create tools for this. I want to help people have this happen to them so that as, as the corals collapse, as the rainforest changes, as the ice melts, they have the tools to actually be human in that experience and do something about it. That's really incredible. What a, what a, what a journey. I, I, I almost uh, found myself in the opposite perspective. You know, a few months ago, I was uh, reading a little bit about Vedanta um, and non-dualism and, you know, just reflecting, well, if, if this world is my consciousness and it's all one, why, why am I doing anything? Do I, you know, do I have to save the coral reefs? Do I have to go into work? Will, will Jordan find out if I stay home? Um, what do you think inspired you to uh, take, take yours? I want to develop tools and measurements to help versus, you know, just stay at home and see what your consciousness uh, does for you? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Actually, I'm working with a group um, called the EPRC, Emergent um, Phenomenology Research Consortium, 
we we tried to come up with a shorter name and we couldn't. But we're really interested in what happens as you have psychological or spiritual transformation. So when you, when you meditate, when you take psychedelics, and to be honest, Christians and Hindus also, they have transformations that happen to them. They're real experiences that they they have. And, and a lot of that's kind of missed by psychology and modern medicine. But we're really interested in... Uh, applying a scientific lens to understand, like have a map of that stuff so that when it's happening to people, we can support them and move through. And I, I had something like that happen to me, actually, when I started meditating about uh, 15 years ago at this point, 17 years ago. I went on a lot of long retreats and I, I experienced kind of what you're talking about, which is from a very high level, like what's the point? If everything is my mind or if everything is the void is what Buddhists call it or everything is whatever, you know, like I, I kind of emptied. And in, in Buddhism, or sorry, in the contemplative psychologies, they call this flatlining. And what I didn't know is that there's 2000 years of ways of supporting a human being going through that experience. So I didn't know as a, you know, a, a late teen, early 20s person that this is totally normal. Lots of people who go on long meditation retreats have a flat line and all you got to do is X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and so I spent like 10 years trying to put all that together and I went through my climate collapse phase and all of that. And then I found a, a community of Buddhist and, and sort of secular meditation people and I would tell them like, hey, I went through this and they're like, great. And I'm like, no, no, not great. It, it, it like disrupted my life for a decade. And they're like, no, no, this is really good. This is part of, you know, a way that one way that people kind of change into this. The important part is kind of what you do after it. So how do you put the pieces back together after you have this psychological shift? And it, it's very similar to being like a preteen and moving into teenage years. Like you have a shift in your your personhood, right? And who you are and how you understand the world totally normal. The, the difference is we, we try to support our teenagers as they become adults, you know, as they move through those phases. And in the same way, when people have these psychological shifts, spiritual shifts, whatever you want to call them, they need a, a massive amount of support. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the past decade of my life is supporting myself through psychotherapy and other things. And what I've been able to do is sort of connect that that sort of existential question of what's the point if it's all just space dust and matter and energy and quantum foam right if that's really what all this is like what the heck why would i save the coral i had to connect that back with my human experience so there's a human being asking what's the point and there's a human being having these emotions and that that doesn't go away even if you're completely enlightened which i'm definitely not claiming to be but you know even if you're on psychedelics and having a big ego trip or whatever Eventually it goes away and you're still human. You come back to being a normal human. And I think that's the real work. You know, that's the real challenge for labs like mine, for the psychedelic community, and honestly, all the other communities who are trying to help people have these shifts. One of the questions I had is, Jay, is, you know, the consciousness is, is, a, is a big word. Is there a real definition of, con I mean, how, how would you define consciousness? Well, you know, mindfulness is extremely hard to define in the lab. Consciousness is so hard that it may be impossible, according to some people. So I, I tend to, to side on that side as well. I do, I, I do help run the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. We have a big conference every year on the science of consciousness. 
That conference has been going for 24 years, and we've gotten further away from a definition in some sense, and perhaps closer in other senses, but we haven't settled on one. And that was the, the express purpose of the conference, is to pull scientists, philosophers, mathematicians, and other folks together and see, like, can we push the needle? And I do think that we've done that, but getting closer to how you define it, we kind of went in the opposite direction because David Chalmers, who's a famous philosopher, uh, started out here in, in Arizona and he was part of the conference and he came up with something he called the hard problem. So we can measure, you know, the con we can measure the correlates of consciousness. So if I change your state, if I give you some some magic mushrooms, if you, if you come to, you know, Berkeley, get some magic mushrooms, you go inside the MRI, your consciousness will change and the, the MRI signal will change. That's a correlate. David called that the easy problem. I can look at the changes in the correlates. The hard problem is knowing how the correlates cause consciousness. And that is a bridge that we may never cross with our current tools. We may need, you know, the artificial intelligence to become so smart, it creates a tool and then it tells us. <laughs> um, I actually um, believe that consciousness is prevalent in everything. So I, I'm what's called a panpsychist. Um, and it's kind of a, was a controversial view. It kind of came into favor in science in the early 20th century and then went out for a while with the behaviorists. Now it's kind of coming back a little bit. Um, but, you know, I believe that everything has some level of it. And therefore, maybe it's next to energy and information. Maybe it's energy, information, maybe masses in there and then consciousness, right? Or maybe it's just energy, information and consciousness. So that's, that's just my intuition based on my own personal experiences. But as a scientist, I have, I have no idea. I can't give you a good answer. Well, I, I think one of my questions is, uh, presumably we all have consciousness as far as I've seen. Um, uh, in, a, in a, the humans, we've, we've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. But, you know, we're talking about meditation, uh, attention, focus. What, I guess one question is, what are your thoughts on, you know, why isn't that just the uh, inherent state of mind. It seems like that would have some, some benefit. And yet I think the vast majority of the population is far from this goal and this enlightenment and, uh, to, to our prior discussion causes immense suffering for the majority of the world. Great question. Um, you know, I, I tend to think about these things along the dimension of separation. Um, and that's just kind of where I am in my, my current practice, but, I think that what we have done in the modern world is created ways to separate ourselves from what you're talking about. So communion with nature, um, actually connection with other physical human beings, um, and, and ways of knowing ourselves that are not like looking at myself through Facebook, right? Like e even portraying myself through Facebook is separating me from me because now I'm understanding myself through the picture of myself and certain angles and all of this kind of stuff. And so I think we've created a whole bunch of tools, you know, and I think modern society is great in, in, a, in a lot of ways. It's increased happiness. It's reduced, you know, suffering in a lot of ways and it's made people live longer. So we've got a lot of great things going in society, but I think fundamentally we've created tools that have separated us from the things that are helping us have meaning and purpose and human connection and that kind of stuff. And so I think actually in that sense, you know, it might be possible that a long time ago, people had a little more access to that just because the problems are more immediate, but the tools were not so like separating them out. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe primitive person was also as, as upset and as much suffering as, as we are. 
But uh, what I think is really important is creating those tools to help us have more connection with whatever it is that's meaningful for us. And I think that's immediately available for everybody. We get it lots of times in our lives. You have a baby, you fall in love, you know, someone dies in your life, for example, it, it reshifts your orientation, you put Facebook down and you kind of re reconnect for a minute. Um, but I think that's a fundamental sort of tension we have in our society between really wanting connection and like separating ourselves. I think that you, you said uh, it's immediately available, which I find really interesting. And so initially I thought of meditation as a, a, a practice that, you know, you can do for a set amount of time and it's one more item on my to-dos for the day. But I guess when you say it's immediately available, is it almost the, the opposite where it's kind of, as you said, turning off your separations and then you realize the, the truth and awareness and things of that nature? Yeah, that's, the, that's the dirty secret of all of this is it's right there. <laughs> but, you know, for someone with chronic pain, it's not because the pain is right there, right? The pain is, is not, you know, preventing them from connecting with the redwood trees or whatever, right? So, you know, it's easy to say, but in practice, we're, we're actually quite far away from what's right in front of us. And so that's why it's important to train it, you know, with mindfulness practice and other things that allows us to be more, to, to have more access to what is immediately present, which is your child or the food in front of you or the music you're listening to. You know, it's all right there, but you got all this stuff happening in the mind <laughs> that's, that's kind of preventing you from it. When you talk about, just, just to go back to this concept of pain, um, because there's enteroceptive pain, which is pain that comes up through your neck and it represents some physical pain. And then there's emotional pain. And emotional pain is not enteroceptive in its, I think, its nature, but there are a lot of you know, studies and, and, and beliefs and that emotional pain is the same thing as physical pain, only it just kind of maybe resides in a different part of the brain. But do you distinguish between back pain and like, I just broke up with my, my girlfriend pain or my father just died pain? How do you, how do you or how does the neuroscience community define pain? When we use pain, we tend to think of physical pain, but most of us are living with emotional pain prior to that and, and physical pain comes and goes. So um, the focus should not just be on the physical, it should be on the emotional as well. From a brain point of view, they're separate in the way they emerge, but actually I think they're similar in mechanism in the sense of that equation, that suffering equals pain times resistance. So you could call it suffering equals emotional pain times resistance as well. It's the same exact mechanism. And honestly, I think the emotional pain circuits may be a little more because what we tend to do is perseverate, you know, so I've studied depression and other disorders of, of, of consciousness where you perseverate on negative emotion, negative pain, you know, uh, emotional pain and those types of things. What the mind is really good at is looping that back into the pain system. <laughs> so you just torture yourself by thinking about, oh, that stupid thing I said on the podcast with Jordan, why should I, why did I say it that way? And now I'm, I'm experiencing all this body stuff, you know, actual pain. Um, emotions and stuff like that, which triggers a mood state. And then, you know, now I'm looping because I should have said that smart thing with Jordan and Justin. So uh, in a sense, I think it's almost a bigger problem that we tend to focus away from the emotional stuff while it's looping through our systems. Speaking of pain and meditation, mindfulness, it sounds like, again, a great tool other than pills. But uh, I definitely wanted to ask, you know, uh, we live in modern society. I, I want everything uh, quick and simple. 
could I go on Amazon right now, buy a powerful magnet from who knows where, pop it on my head, <laughs> um, perhaps a, a whole magnetic ring around my forehead, and that will do the meditation for me because I've seen this uh, pop up. Uh, I, I haven't had any patients purchase it, but you know, I think people want to know, is there a shortcut? Um, and it seems like one mechanism seems to be um, magnets. Another one, actually a friend of mine sent me for to improve his work productivity involved uh, uh, light electrical stimulation. Well, and then, and then there's the music. So there's a company called Focus at Will. Uh, I think the uh, lead singer, or not this, but the talking heads guy, Will Henshaw, basically figured out that by certain types of music will allow you to focus and pay attention better. So there's sounds like there's lots of ways to, to do it. But what do you think, Jay? I, I think they're real. And I think we have a long way to go, um, to be honest. And so, you know, my, my lab in Arizona is also working on tools to enhance meditation practice. So help you get the benefits sooner as well. We use focus ultrasound and, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, we actually use light therapy as well. It's called photobiomodulation. So all of the above, you know, are under investigation by my lab and others. But I think I would, I would zoom back and ask, you know, what's the real purpose, right? So the real purpose is to reduce the suffering or the pain. Maybe someone has this goal, maybe for, for the people that are seeing you. And I think, yes, in the short term, you could find a part of the brain, you could zap it, and you could reduce the pain, right? There's opioid centers, there's all kinds of scary places we can think about stimulating. But that's not going to help, actually. So that in the short term, just like with an opioid, right, that, that could reduce the pain and reduce the suffering in, in some sense. But the real goal here, I think, is actually to help a person gain control of their conscious mind. So gain control of attention so that when pain shows up again, you have a tool. So that's like in our lab, we're really trying to create the inner tool so that when the, the stress comes again or when the pain comes again, now it's not such a big deal and you don't loop into the anxiety and depression, for example. And if that's the goal, we're far away away because really the only things that do that now are meditation, cognitive behavior therapy, growing up, you know, just becoming more, more grown up will help you do this as well. And that's because you're dealing with a whole brain-body interaction, right? You're not dealing with like one part of the brain. So there's no way to just stimulate that. But what you can do is if, if I'm meditating, so in our lab, we teach people meditation. Then we do the brain stimulation while they're trying to, to gain inner control. And the brain stimulation can be like training wheels to help them learn, right? Like that's kind of where we are. And we're still sort of asking the question, does that really work? <laughs> And for some people, it does. Some people, it doesn't. Right. But it's not going to be a magic pill, a magic bullet. And I don't think it ever will, actually. Yeah. And, and something else you mentioned uh, when we were chatting earlier was that, you know, if you uh, remove pain with fentanyl or some strong medication, do you like remove suffering? Yeah. You know, as a person who creates these tools, I'm really interested in what has gone wrong in the past. Right. Because I think we really need to learn and really create models so we don't get stuck in those problems again. So, you know, the sort of opioid crisis, uh, everything that played out with the Sackler family has been really fascinating to me because there was a real intention in the beginning to help people re reduce their pain. And there was assumption that if you just found a way to reduce pain, you would lead to a reduction in suffering. And I think it's pretty clear that didn't happen. We have the whole opioid crisis and people addicted to these drugs. But really what we learned is that 
you know, it's not enough to just reduce the pain. That if the person becomes dependent on a drug to cope with the pain signal that they have in their body, that then shifts their attention away from all the other stuff that they've got going on. There's emotional pain, right? There's social dynamics, there's jobs, there's kids, there's all kinds of things they need to be paying attention to. And if the drug is just sort of muting that attention and then causing them to get in a loop where they need the drug to help the pain, you've reduced pain very clearly, and now you've increased suffering for the kids, the job, all the other stuff going on in that person's life. And so that's what I mean. Like we really got to focus on the inner part of the person, give them tools to deal with the crying child, deal with the spouse that's yelling at them, deal with the boss who's demanding them as they have their pain. <laughs> and it, it's totally doable. Like that's, that's the funny part of all this is like you can have chronic pain and still show up. I mean, it's, I know, I know hundreds of people who have this capability. So, but, but we have to focus on the real problem, which is actually not the pain. The real problem is basically how you relate to your pain and the tools you have to relate to it. So again, for me, it comes back to that connection problem. I was having dinner with a neurologist the other night and he said something like humans are emotional beings that sometimes think they are not thinking beings that sometimes have emotions. And, and when you think about that, like, I, I think that the meditation is trying to use your probably like a combination of your emotional and your thinking skills into like some hybrid state. But in general, like we're always trying to translate these emotions we have into thoughts and, and those thoughts are, are, are crude versions of, of what the emotions are because it's hard to put adjectives and, and real contours around emotions. So I think language kind of gets in the way. But I'm just wondering, Jay, how you or if you've studied or thought about, you know, this this concept of the emotions and thinking and, you know, is that all part of the, the brew of, of consciousness, which it clearly is, but... Yeah, you're so intuitive. I love it. <laughs> you you have one of these minds that's integrating. So really, that's what you're asking about is what, what they call in meditation and psychedelics, the problem of integration. But it's really taking all of these parts. And that's what your brain and your body do. They take trillions of cells and they somehow integrate it into a thing that goes and cooks a piece of pizza. <laughs> right? it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing <clears throat> that we can even do that. And then, we, and then we can make pizza factories and pizza bot. Like we do so much incredible stuff with the organization of the system. And that, that is integrating. It's integrating all of it into an output. And consciousness, it's integrating it all into what we might call healthy consciousness or a healthy way of being conscious versus like an unhealthy way, which might be like focusing too much on the collapse of the ecosystems in my, in my situation. Because when I do that, I'm not also being aware that I have a fiance who's in my life who also needs attention, right? So I'm unintegrated. There's a piece of me that wants connection. There's a piece of me that wants to resolve this, you know, crazy conflict that I feel like I have to solve because I have a hero complex or whatever, right? And the work is using these tools to integrate all that into a human being that's able to act in a world that feels right to them, that feels um, useful that feels connected. And this is sort of the, the last stage of usually contemplative practices where you start talking about compassion and, you know, action, right? Because the ultimate goal for traditional, you know, Buddhism, for example, is either you become enlightened and you go live in a cave, that's one version, right? Or you become a person who 
understands what and who they are. And then you go out and you act in a way to help other people have that as well, right? It's an act of compassion. And for me, that's what science is doing. We're trying to create tools that help people integrate all this stuff together, integrate the stresses of the world, integrate the whatever psychology you got going on so that I can go be a better lab leader, so that you can be a better doctor, so you can be a better spouse um, or whatever it is. And that's really a question of integrating all of this stuff together. And we've been discussing, I think, mindfulness quite a bit. Uh, I, I suspect most li listeners are familiar in broad terms what that means. But for someone who wants to, who, for someone who's incredibly inspired uh, by the work you're doing and listening to this podcast, what do you recommend as a, uh, a meditation? Is it just focus on breathing? Is it, you know, those four by four breathing squares? Is it just go for a walk? you know, alternating nostril breathing. What, what are your thoughts about how to begin? Great question. You know, I would tell people to imagine themselves like a scientist and you got to go experiment because that's one thing that the, the contemplative neuroscience is telling us is that different types of meditations work for different types of people. Not, kind of not surprising as I say it, right? But very surprising for traditional um, types of practices. So you go try stuff. There's all kinds of apps. There's Calm and there's like Shenzhen has an app called BrightMind. There's another app called Equa. There's teaching on YouTube. You know, there's meditation retreat centers. If you're in the Bay Area, there's like one every street corner, you know. So one thing I will say, though, is that you don't have to meditate on the pillow. And that's actually really important because you can meditate while you're driving. You can meditate while you're giving a talk on a podcast. You can, there's all kinds of different ways to meditate. And I wish I would have known that a lot sooner because I used to just meditate on the pillow, Zen style, like staring at a wall. Um, and that was kind of hard for integration because ultimately I want to integrate my meditation skills into my life. I want to be more present, more open, have more equanimity while I'm fighting with someone or while I'm playing basketball, right? And actually, the, you can. Like, that's a secret. Like, you don't have to meditate on the pillow. You could do all this outside. So I would encourage people to look for those types of meditation trainings that allow them to keep their eyes open while they're meditating, while they're driving or walking, stuff like that. Even with psychedelics, which sound like often you can have a single dose or whatnot uh, and then have a paradigm shift, do you still think there's benefit to daily meditation or no? Uh, you know, you have a psychedelic experience and everything's changed. Great question. Uh, very insightful question, too, because that, that kind of gets back to this question about integration. So we are arguing in Similab in my lab at Arizona <clears throat> very heavily that if you meditate first before having the big ego blast through a psychedelic, that you'll be much more likely to integrate that in a healthy way over time. So, so the little uh, the dirty secret here is you're always integrating because that's the way memory works. If you look up memory integration, you'll see you know thousands of papers on it. So you have no choice but to integrate, but you do have a choice about whether you do that consciously or actively, or if you just go take your psychedelic blast off. You you have communion with nature and you know you you heal your trauma with your parents, whatever that is. You have it happen. And then what do you do? You go get on Facebook, <laughs> right? So Facebook is now helping you integrate in the way that Facebook is going to work. And maybe that'll be okay for you, or maybe the algorithms behind Facebook are going to help you shift in a different direction, right? And that's kind of one of my fears about all of this. 
And so we're arguing very strongly, like, start working before you do the psychedelic, you know, do psychological cleanup if you need to go to a psychologist and do some focused attention practice through mindfulness. And then when the stuff comes up, you'll be more ready and then keep meditating after so that when other stuff comes up, you know, you're still working in a way that's helpful for you. Jay, what are the common misconceptions that in your field that you would say are, you know, that drive you kind of crazy or you wish people would stop having them? Uh, that meditation's all good for you. Meditation's not all good for you. That's been one thing that's really been pushed hard, you know, in the, in the field and I think by the news. But this is one of the things that we're talking about is that low doses of meditation, totally good. Everyone should obviously go do that. But as you increase the dose, and I know Jordan doesn't like me talking about meditation as a dose, <laughs> but, but yeah, as you start meditating more, things are going to happen, which is good. It's it's all good, but it can it can be a challenge if you don't have support as you go through that. And that's part of what there's new studies coming out showing that people do have what are called adverse events when they go to meditation retreats. It's not to say that you shouldn't meditate. It's that you should know about that. Just like with a drug, you know, any of the drugs, you watch the commercial, here's all the potential side effects. That's true for meditation. It's true for psychotherapy. It's it's true for falling in love. I'm sorry. Sorry to tell everyone out there. (laughs) Falling in love has side effects as well, right? So all of these things do. That's the human experience. The important part is to to know about it, be prepared for it, and have some support as things happen. And then you integrate that into the person you want to become. You know, that's a better version of you. And so I think that's one of the big things with meditation. You always hear about all the positive stuff. But meditation, mindfulness, these types of things are opening the door. And I think we have to be very open about that as we move into giving tools to people especially if they're meditating and doing psychedelics, you know, and and not going to psychotherapy, there's a problem I see actually for a lot of people. So, you know, you got to sort of look at the whole thing and be honest about what's the experience of people as they do this. And then you create the tools to help them through it. You don't just pretend that it's this reductionist, non-secular, non-Buddhist, you know, I mean, mindfulness is non-Buddhist, but, you know, we talk about it as the secular thing that has no other dimensions to it. Uh, that's not what people tell us when they do it. So, you know, I think we have to be kind of careful about that. Well, listen, Jay, this has been fantastic. I feel like we, we're just kind of getting started here, but but we're actually coming to the end, um, sadly. So I, I want to just say a big thank you. And Justin, if you have any further uh, or any kind of closing thoughts or questions. No, I think I think this was a, a brilliant conversation. The, your, your research is just really exciting. And so I'm, 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 you know, I'm excited to see what comes forth. I'll, I'll continue my own journey. I hope our listeners uh, start practicing as well. But uh, don't be surprised if I start emailing you for help. And Jay, is there any way our listeners can, can follow what you're doing or, or keep track of your progress? I know you're in a stealth company that we can't talk about right now, but I'm super excited to hear when that thing comes out of stealth because I'm sure it's going to be kind of uh, a big deal. If they look up Semalab, S-E-M-A lab at the University of Arizona, we have a website and actually a newsletter that goes out every couple months. So happy to follow us there. You know, I've got talks on YouTube and things like that as well that people can follow and they can reach out to me or to the lab through the Semalab uh, website. And do you promise we can have you back on the, on the podcast when you come out of stealth and talk about what you've done? I would love to. Amazing. It's magnets on Amazon, isn't it? Well, thank you so much, Jay. This was great. Thank you so much. This was fun.
Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch, which you can find on our website, privatemedical.org. You can find the link in the show notes.